Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Tonight, I will be reading Far From The Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter One When Farmer Oak smiled, the corners of his mouth spread till they were within an unimportant distance of his ears. His eyes were reduced to slits, and diverging wrinkles appeared round them, extending upon his countenance like the rays in a rudimentary sketch of the rising sun. His Christian name was Gabriel, and on working days he was a young man of sound judgment, easy motions, proper dress, and general good character. 
On Sundays, he was a man of misty views, rather given to postponing, and hampered by his best clothes and umbrella. Upon the whole, one who felt himself to occupy morally that vast, middle space of Laodicean neutrality, which lay between the communion people of the parish and the drunken section. That is, he went to church, but yawned privately by the time the congregation reached the Nicene Creed, and thought of what there would be for dinner when he meant to be listening to the sermon. Or to state his character as it stood in the scale of public opinion, when his friends and critics were in tantrums, he was considered rather a bad man. When they were pleased, he was rather a good man. And when they were neither, he was a man whose moral colour was a kind of pepper and salt mixture. Since he lived six times as many working days as Sundays, Oaks' appearance in his old clothes was most peculiarly his own, the mental picture formed by his neighbours in imagining him being always dressed in that way. He wore a low-crowned felt hat, spread out at the base by tight jamming upon the head for security in high winds, and a coat like Dr. Johnson's, his lower extremities being encased in ordinary leather leggings and boots emphatically large, affording to each foot a roomy apartment so constructed that any wearer might stand in a river all day long and know nothing of the damp their maker being a conscientious man who endeavoured to compensate for any weakness in his cut by unstinted dimension and solidity. Mr. Oak carried about him by way of watch what may be called a small silver clock. In other words, it was a watch as to shape and intention and a small clock as to size. This instrument being several years older than Oak's grandfather had the peculiarity of going either too fast or not at all. The smaller of its hands, too, occasionally slipped round on the pivot, and thus, though the minutes were told with precision, nobody could be quite certain of the hour they belonged to. The stopping peculiarity of his watch, Oak remedied by thumps and shakes, and he escaped any evil consequences from the other two defects, by constant comparisons with and observations of the sun and stars, and by pressing his face close to the glass of his neighbour's windows till he could discern the hour marked by the green-faced timekeepers within. It may be mentioned that Oak's fob being difficult of access, by reason of its somewhat high situation in the waistband of his trousers, which also lay at a remote height under his waistcoat, the watch was as a necessity pulled out by throwing the body to one side, compressing the mouth and face to a mere mass of ruddy flesh, on account of the exertion required, and drawing up the watch by its chain like a bucket from a well. But some thoughtful persons who had seen him walking across one of his fields on a certain December morning, sunny and exceedingly mild, might have regarded Gabriel Oak in other aspects than these. In his face, one might notice that many of the hues and curves of youth had tarried on to manhood. There even remained in his remoter crannies some relics of the boy. His height and breadth would have been sufficient to make his presence imposing had they been exhibited with due concern. But there is a way some men have, rural and urban alike, for which the mind is more responsible than flesh and sinew. It is a way of curtailing their dimensions by their manner of showing them. 
and from a quiet modesty that would have become a vestal, which seemed continually to impress upon him that he had no great claim on the world's room. Oak walked unassumingly and with a faintly perceptible bend, yet distinct from a bowing of the shoulders. This may be said to be a defect in an individual if he depends for his evaluation more upon his appearance than upon his capacity to wear well, which Oak did not. He had just reached the time of life in which young is ceasing to be the prefix of man and speaking of one. He was at the brightest period of masculine growth, for his intellect and his emotions were clearly separated. He had passed the time during which the influence of youth indiscriminately mingles them in the character of impulse, and he had not yet arrived at the stage wherein they become united again in the character of prejudice by the influence of a wife and family. In short, he was 28 and a bachelor. The field he was in this morning sloped to a ridge called Norcombe Hill. Through a spur of this hill ran the highway between Emister and Chalk Newton. Casually glancing over the hedge, Oak saw coming down the incline before him an ornamental spring wagon, painted yellow and gaily marked, drawn by two horses. A wagoner walking alongside, bearing a whip perpendicularly. The wagon was laden with household goods and window plants, and on the apex of the hole sat a woman, young and attractive. Gabriel had not beheld the sight for more than half a minute, when the vehicle was brought to a standstill just beneath his eyes. The tailboard of the wagon is gone, miss, said the wagoner. Then I heard it fall, said the girl, in a soft, though not particularly low voice. I heard a noise I could not account for when we were coming up the hill. I'll run back. Do, she answered. The sensible horses stood perfectly still, and the wagoner's steps sank fainter and fainter in the distance. The girl on the summit of the load sat motionless, surrounded by tables and chairs with their legs upwards, backed by an oak settle, and ornamented in front by pots of geraniums, myrtles and cactuses, together with a caged canary, all probably from the windows of the house just vacated. There was also a cat in a willow basket, from the partly open lid of which she gazed with half-closed eyes and affectionately surveyed the small birds around. The handsome girl waited for some time idly in her place, and the only sound heard in the stillness was the hopping of the canary up and down the purchase of its prison. Then she looked attentively downwards. It was not at the bird nor at the cat. It was at an oblong package tied in paper and lying between them. She turned her head to learn if the wagoner was coming. He was not yet in sight, and her eyes crept back to the package, her thoughts seeming to run upon what was inside it. At length, she drew the article into her lap and untied the paper covering. A small, swaying looking glass was disclosed, in which she proceeded to survey herself attentively. She parted her lips and smiled. It was a fine morning, and the sun lighted up to a scarlet glow the crimson jacket she wore, and painted a soft luster upon her bright face and dark hair. The myrtles, geraniums, and cactuses packed around her were fresh and green, and at such a leafless season, they invested the whole concern of horses, wagon, furniture, and girl with a peculiar vernal charm. 
What possessed her to indulge in such a performance in the sight of the sparrows, blackbirds, an unperceived farmer who were alone its spectators? Whether the smile began as a factitious one to test her capacity in that art, nobody knows. It ended certainly in a real smile. She blushed at herself, and seeing her reflection blush, blushed the more. The change from the customary spot and necessary occasion of such an act, from the dressing hour in a bedroom to a time of travelling outdoors, lent to the idle deed a novelty it did not intrinsically possess. The picture was a delicate one. A cynical inference was irresistible by Gabriel Oak, as he regarded the scene, generous though he fain would have been. There was no necessity whatever for her looking in the glass. She did not adjust her hat or pat her hair or press a dimple into shape or do one thing to signify that any such intention had been her motive in taking up the glass. She simply observed herself as a fair product of nature in the feminine kind, her thoughts seeming to glide into far-off though likely dramas in which men would play a part, the vistas of probable triumphs, the smiles being of a phase suggesting that hearts were imagined as lost and won. Still, this was but conjecture, and the whole series of actions was so idly put forth as to make it rash to assert that intention had any part in them at all. The wagoner's steps were heard returning. She put the glass and the paper and the hole again into its place. When the wagoner passed, Gabriel withdrew from his point of espial and, descending into the road, followed the vehicle to the turnpike gate, some way beyond the bottom of the hill where the object of his contemplation now halted for the payment of toll. About twenty steps still remained between him and the gate when he heard a dispute. It was a difference containing tuppence between the persons with the wagon and the man at the toll bar. Mrs.'s niece is upon the top of the things, and she says that's enough that I've offered you, you great miser, and she won't pay any more. These were the wagoner's words. Very well. The missus's niece can't pass, said the turnpike keeper, closing the gate. Oak looked from one to the other of disputants and fell into a reverie. There was something in the tone of tuppence remarkably insignificant. Threepence had a definite value as money. It was an appreciable infringement on a day's wages and, as such, a higgling matter. But tuppence. Here, he said, stepping forward and handing tuppence to the gatekeeper. Let the young woman pass. He looked up at her then. She heard his words and looked down. Gabriel's features adhered throughout their form, so exactly to the middle line between the beauty of St. John and the ugliness of Judas Iscariot, as represented in a window of the church he intended, that not a single lineament could be selected and called worthy either of distinction or notoriety. The red-jacketed and dark-haired maiden seemed to think so too, for she carelessly glanced over him and told her man to drive on. She might have looked her thanks to Gabriel on a minute scale, but she did not speak them. More probably she felt none, for in gaining her a passage he had lost her a point. And we know how women take favour of that kind. The gatekeeper surveyed the retreating vehicle, that's a handsome maid, he said to Oak. But she has her faults, said Gabriel. True farmer. And the greatest of them is, 
well, what it always is. Beating people down? I to so. Oh no. What then? Gabriel, perhaps a little piqued by the comely's traveller's indifference, glanced back to where he had witnessed her performance over the hedge and said, Vanity. Chapter 2 It was nearly midnight on the eve of St. Thomas's, the shortest day in the air. The desolating wind wandered from the north over the hill, whereon Oak had watched the yellow wagon and its occupant in the sunshine of a few days earlier. Norcombe Hill, not far from Lonely Toller Down, was one of the spots which suggests to a passerby that he is in the presence of a shape approaching the indestructible as nearly as any to be found on earth. It was a featureless convexity of chalk and soil, an ordinary specimen of those smoothly outlined protuberances of the globe, which may remain undisturbed on some great day of confusion when far grander heights and dizzy granite precipices topple down. The hill was covered on its northern side by an ancient and decaying plantation of beeches, whose upper verge formed a line over the crest, fringing its arched curve against the sky like a mane. Tonight, these trees sheltered the southern slope from the keenest blasts, which smote the wood and floundered through it with a sound as of grumbling or gushed over its crowning boughs in a weakened moan. The dry leaves in the ditch simmered and boiled in the same breezes, a tongue of air occasionally ferreting out a few and sending them spinning across the grass. A group or two of the latest in date amongst the dead multitude had remained till this very midwinter time on the twigs which bore them, and in falling rattled against the trunks with smart taps. Between this half-wooded, half-naked hill and the vague, still horizon that its summit indistinctly commanded was a mysterious sheet of fathomless shade, the sounds from which suggested that what it concealed bore some reduced resemblance to features here. The thin grasses, more or less coating the hill, were touched by the wind in breezes of differing powers and almost of differing natures, one rubbing the blades heavily another raking them piercingly, another brushing them like a soft broom. The instinctive act of mankind was to stand and listen and learn how the trees on the right and the trees on the left wailed or chaunted to each other in the regular antiphonies of a cathedral choir, how hedges and the other shapes to leeward then caught the note, lowering it to the tenderest sob, and how the hurrying gust then plunged into the south to be heard no more. The sky was clear, remarkably clear, and the twinkling of the stars seemed to be but throbs of one body, timed by a common pulse. The north star was directly in the wind's eye, and since evening the bear had swung round it outwardly to the east, till he was now at a right angle with the meridian. A difference of colour in the stars, often are read of than seen in England, was really perceptible here. The sovereign brilliancy of Sirius pierced the eye with a steely glitter. The star called Capella was yellow. Aldebaran and Betelgeuse shone with a fiery red. To persons standing alone on a hill during a clear midnight such as this, the roll of the world eastward is almost a palpable movement. 
A sensation may be caused by the panoramic glide of the stars past earthly objects, which is perceptible in a few minutes of stillness, or by the better outlook upon space that a hill affords, or by the wind, or by the solitude, or whatever be its origin, the impression of riding along is vivid and abiding. The poetry of motion is a phrase much in use, and to enjoy the epic form of that gratification, it is necessary to stand on a hill at a small hour of the night, and having first expanded with a sense of difference from the mass of civilized mankind, who are dream-wrapped and disregardful of all such proceedings at this time, long and quietly watch your stately progress through the stars. After such a nocturnal reconnoitre, it is hard to get back to earth and to believe that the consciousness of such majestic speeding is derived from a tiny human frame. Suddenly, an unexpected series of sounds began to be heard in this place up against the sky. They had a clearness which was to be found nowhere in the wind and a sequence which was to be found nowhere in nature. They were the notes of Farmer Oak's flute. The tune was not floating unhindered into the open air. It seemed muffled in some way and was altogether too curtailed in power to spread high or wide. It came from the direction of a small, dark object under the plantation hedge, a shepherd's hut, now presenting an outline to which an uninitiated person might have been puzzled to attach either meaning or use. The image as a whole was that of a small Norse ark on a small Ararat, allowing the traditionary outlines and general form of the ark, which are followed by toy makers, and by these means are established in men's imaginations among their firmest, because earliest impressions, to pass as an approximate pattern. The hut stood on little wheels, which raised its floor about a foot from the ground. Such shepherd's huts are dragged into the fields when the lambing season comes on, to shelter the shepherd and his enforced nightly attendance. It was only latterly that people had begun to call Gabriel Farmer Oak. During the twelve-month preceding this time, he had been enabled by sustained efforts of industry and chronic good spirits to lease the small sheep farm of which Norcombe Hill was a portion and stock it with two hundred sheep. Previously he had been a bailiff for a short time, and earlier still a shepherd only, having from his childhood assisted his father in tending the flocks of large proprietors till O Gabriel sank to rest. This venture, unaided and alone, into the paths of farming as master and not as a man, with an advance of sheep not yet paid for, was a critical juncture with Gabriel Oak, and he recognised his position clearly. The first movement in his new progress was the lambing of his ewes, and sheep having been his specialty from youth, he wisely refrained from deputing the task of tending to them at this season to a hireling or a novice. The wind continued to beat about the corners of the hut, but the flute playing ceased. A rectangular space of light appeared in the side of the hut, and in the opening the outline of Farmer Oak's figure. He carried a lantern in his hand, and closing the door behind him, came forward and busied himself about this nook of the field for nearly twenty minutes, the lantern light appearing and disappearing here and there, and brightening him or darkening him as he stood before or behind it. Oak's motions, though they had a quiet energy, were slow, 
and their deliberateness accorded well with his occupation. Fitness being the basis of beauty, nobody could have denied that his steady swings and turns in and about the flock had elements of grace. Yet although if occasion demanded, he could do or think a thing, with his mercurial a dash, as can the men of towns, who are more to the manner born, his special power, morally, physically and mentally, was static, owing little or nothing to momentum as a rule. A close examination of the ground hereabout, even by the wan starlight only, revealed how a portion of what would have been casually called a wild slope had been appropriated by Farmer Oak for his great purpose this winter. Detached hurdles thatched with straw were stuck into the ground at various scattered points, amid and under which the whitish forms of his meek ewes moved and rustled. The ring of the sheep bell, which had been silent during his absence, recommenced in tones that had more mellowness than clearness, owing to an increasing growth of surrounding wool. This continued till Oak withdrew again from the flock. He returned to the hut, bringing in his arms a new-born lamb, consisting of four legs, large enough for a full-grown sheep, united by a seemingly inconsiderable membrane, about half the substance of the legs collectively, which constituted the animal's entire body just at present. A little speck of life he placed on a wisp of hay before the small stove, where a can of milk was simmering. Oak extinguished the lantern by blowing into it and then pinching the snuff, the cot being lighted by a candle suspended by a twisted wire. A rather hard couch, formed of a few corn sacks thrown carelessly down, covered half the floor of this little habitation, and here the young man stretched himself along, loosened his woolen cravat, and closed his eyes. In about the time a person unaccustomed to bodily labour would have decided upon which side to lie, Farmer Oak was asleep. The inside of the hut, as it now presented itself, was cosy and alluring, and the scarlet handful of fire, in addition to the candle, reflecting its own genial colour upon whatever it could reach, flung associations of enjoyment even over utensils and tools. In the corner stood the sheep crook, and along a shelf at one side were ranged bottles and canisters of the simple preparations pertaining to ovine surgery and physic. Spirits of wine, turpentine, tar, magnesia, ginger, and castor oil being the chief. On a triangular shelf across the corner stood bread, bacon, cheese, and a cup for ale or cider, which was supplied from a flagon beneath. Beside the provisions lay the flute, whose notes had lately been called forth by the lonely watcher to beguile a tedious hour. The house was ventilated by two round holes, like the lights of a ship's cabin, with wood slides. The lamb, revived by the warmth, began to bleat, and the sound entered Gabriel's ears and brain with an instant meaning, as expected sounds will. Passing from the profoundest sleep to the most alert wakefulness, with the same ease that had accompanied the reverse operation, he looked at his watch, found that the half-hour had shifted again, put on his hat, took the lamb in his arms, and carried it into the darkness. After placing the little creature with its mother, he stood and carefully examined the sky to ascertain the time of night from the altitudes of the stars. The dog star and Aldebaran, 
pointing to the restless Pleiades, were halfway up the southern sky, and between them hung Orion, which gorgeous constellation never burnt more vividly than now, as it soared forth above the rim of the landscape. Castor and Pollux, with their quiet shine, were almost on the meridian. The barren and gloomy square of Pegasus was creeping round to the northwest. Far away through the plantation, Vega sparkled like a lamp suspended amid the leafless trees, and Cassiopeia's chair stood daintily poised on the uppermost boughs. One o'clock, said Gabriel. Being a man not without a frequent consciousness that there was some charm in his life he led, he stood still after looking at the sky as a useful instrument and regarded it in an appreciative spirit as a work of art superlatively beautiful. For a moment he seemed impressed with the speaking loneliness of the scene, or rather with the complete abstraction from all its compass of the sights and sounds of men. Human shapes, interferences, troubles and joys were all as if they were not, and there seemed to be on the shaded hemisphere of the globe no sentient being save himself. He could fancy them all gone round to the sunny side. Occupied thus with eyes stretched afar, Oak gradually perceived that what he had previously taken to be a star, low down behind the outskirts of the plantation, was in reality no such thing. It was an artificial light, almost close at hand. To find themselves utterly alone at night where company is desirable and expected makes some people fearful, but a case more trying by far to the nerves is to discover some mysterious companionship when intuition, sensation, memory, analogy, testimony, probability, induction, every kind of evidence in the logician's list, have united to persuade consciousness that it is quite in isolation. Farmer Oak went towards the plantation and pushed through its lower boughs to the windy side. A dim mass under the slope reminded him that a shed occupied a place here, the site being a cutting into the slope of the hill, so that at its back part the roof was almost level with the ground. In front it was formed of board, nailed posts, and covered with tar as a preservative. Through crevices in the roof and side-spread streaks and dots of light, a combination of which made the radiance that had attracted him, Oak stepped up behind where, leaning down upon the roof and putting his eye close to the hole, he could see into the interior clearly. The place contained two women and two cows. By the side of the latter, a steaming brown mash stood in a bucket. One of the women was past middle age. Her companion was apparently young and graceful. He could form no decided opinion upon her looks, her position being almost beneath his eye, so that he saw her in a bird's eye view as Milton Satan first saw paradise. She wore no bonnet or hat, but had enveloped herself in a large cloak, which was carelessly flung over her head as a covering. There, now we'll go home, said the elder of the two, resting her knuckles upon her hips and looking at their goings-on as a whole. I do hope Daisy will fetch round again now. I've never been more frightened in my life, and I don't mind breaking my rest if she recovers. The young woman, whose eyelids were apparently inclined to fall together on the smallest provocation of silence, yawned, without parting her lips, to any inconvenient extent, whereupon Gabriel caught the infection and slightly yawned in sympathy. I wish we were rich enough to pay a man to do these things, she said. As we are not, we must do them ourselves, said the other, for you must help me if you stay. 
Well, my hat is gone, however, continued the younger. It went over the hedge, I think. The idea of such a slight wind catching it. The cow standing erect was of a Devon breed and was encased in a tight, warm hide of rich Indian red. It's absolutely uniform from eyes to tail, as if the animal had been dipped in a dye of that colour, her long back being mathematically level. The other was spotted, grey and white. Beside her, Oak now noticed a little calf about a day old, looking idiotically at the two women, which showed that it had not long been accustomed to the phenomenon of eyesight, and often turning to the lantern, which it apparently mistook for the moon, inherited instinct having as yet had little time for correction by experience. Between the sheep and the cows, Lucina had been busy on Norcombe Hill lately. I think we'd better send for some oatmeal, said the elder woman. There's no more bran. Yes, aunt, and I'll ride over for it as soon as it is light. But there is no side saddle. I can ride on the other, trust me. Oh, upon hearing these remarks, he came more curious to observe her features. But this prospect being denied him by the hooding effect of the cloak and by his aerial position, he felt himself drawing upon his fancy for their details. In making even horizontal and clear inspections, we colour and mould according to the wants within us, whatever our eyes bring in. Had Gabriel been able from the first to get a distinct view of her countenance? His estimate of it as very handsome, or slightly so, would have been as his soul required a divinity at the moment, or was ready supplied with one. Having for some time known the want of a satisfactory form to fill an increasing void within him, his position, moreover, affording the widest scope for his fancy, he painted her beauty. By one of those whimsical coincidences in which nature, like a busy mother, seems to spare a moment from her unremitting labours to turn and make her children smile, the girl now dropped the cloak and forth tumbled ropes of black hair over a red jacket. Oak knew her instantly as the heroine of the yellow wagon, myrtles and looking glass, as the woman who owed him. Tuppence. They placed the calf beside its mother again, took up the lantern, and went out, the light sinking down the hill till it was no more than a nebula. Gabriel Oak returned to his flock.